You're listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBT plus adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at www.newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor and this week we're going to be talking to Susan and Jane about adopting when you're in the military and adopting after infertility. Hello, both of you. Hello. Hi. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about your adoption journey and where you are in that? Um, Yeah, I suppose uh, I'll start off, really. Um, Myself and Susan have been together for, well, married for nearly four years this year. And um, we when we first got together, I had to have a very direct conversation with her um, about the fact that I had previously tried through IVF um, to start a family with my ex-partner, which was unsuccessful. Um, But that moving forward, I still very much wanted to be trying at some point to again to have a family and so that was something that was very much important to me whereas Susan had actually never had that thought process for herself yeah for me um quite strange because I'm I was more career focused and um it wasn't until Jane and I had started having conversations that I had to reflect on why I hadn't had that thought process um, and I think it was more down to, after we chatted for a while, it was, I believe it was more down to the fact that I physically didn't want to give birth. Um, so that was kind of a big, a big stopping point for me initially. Um, but then whereas I, I can, yeah, sorry. whereas I, whereas I did, um, and actually when we first got together, I still really wanted to go through that process. Um, so we actually started our journey with doing three rounds of IVF unfortunately two were negative and one was a eight-week discovery miscarriage um gosh so you really went through quite a horrible time starting to try and form your family you know it was very much wrapped in loss and so on yeah very much um and after that quite intense 12-month period because we took a a three three cycle 12-month package because it was cheaper financially um we kind of needed to stop and reflect because my body physically and mentally couldn't continue the way we were. Um, And we'd always thought about adoption, but it had never been quite the right time for us. And at that point, it felt started to feel more and more like now was the right time to look at adoption as a real option. Yes. And Susan, for you, given that you'd sort of been encouraged into wanting children, if you like, did that process of the fertility treatment really awaken that desire? Or when that went wrong, could you have sort of stopped there and grieved that loss, but perhaps finished? Or were you as keen on forming a family by another route? I was, um, the actual process of the fertility treatment took me in directions that I never realised a, a process could take me in. Um Obviously, physically, I wasn't going through any of the treatments um, because Jane was doing that. But emotionally, I was wholeheartedly invested and supportive as much as I could be. Um, So anytime there was any sort of um, happiness or joy, we both shared in that um, wholeheartedly. Um, And conversely, anytime there was any sadness and um, disruption in what we were trying to achieve um I I, I don't want to go through that feeling ever again I must admit um the day we found out um that the 
the the one hadn't been um, successful. I wouldn't want anybody to go through that um, ever again. But um, I think because of my background, um, I'm I'm in the Royal Navy, and mm-hmm. one of one of the things that we are um, taught to to do is be resilient. Um, but it's really really um it's it's my my resilience i suppose has has made me more determined to have a family um and having that conversation during those really emotional times as well um brought out things that i I didn't realize that i wanted myself um so i think i'm I'm, you know more determined now uh, or was more determined after that process to um, look at different directions to go in uh, to achieve what we both wanted. Yes, I can see. I can see how that thought process would work. And Jane, for you, how was it to move from fertility treatment into thoughts of forming a family through adoption? Um, it was an interesting process because obviously you kind of we actually our miscarriage was in the middle of the three cycles. So what I hadn't really allowed myself to do when we did miscarriage was grieve. It was a kind of, right, get back on the roundabout, move on. We've got another try. Let's see what happens. So it was at the end of those three cycles that really everything just took hold and we needed to have that time out regardless of what was going to happen next so that we could grieve, we could work our way through all those emotions that we'd been through. I really recognise that because um, my partner and I also had fertility treatment before we had our first child and really similarly, lots of cycles and including um, a miscarriage. And there was this sort of disbelief that it hadn't worked. I think I just, on some subconscious level, had thought if we threw enough money and enough time at it, it would eventually work. (laughs) And this sort of growing bafflement that it it still wasn't working and still wasn't working. And I just couldn't. And who do you get cross with? You know, I wanted to make a complaint and speak to the (laughs) highest authorities. and, Mm -hmm. and, And there's nobody to. So this sort of it sort of goes inside you a little bit, this this anger and this bafflement and this disbelief. I found it really hard. Absolutely. And I think for me as well, before we'd started our own process, we'd actually used the NHS to have a fertility check. So I had a full MOT on the NHS. They told me there would be nothing wrong and I should get pregnant. So then when it didn't and I miscarried for the second time in my lifetime um, and then the clinic we were going with, the private clinic, also couldn't give me a reason as to why it wasn't working. That was just so frustrating. I wanted to tell someone that I was infertile, someone to tell me rather that I was infertile or that I had problems because at least then I'd have something to go to as to the reason why it wasn't working. Whereas the only reason I could give was my body wasn't working. Yeah. And so then it became that cycle of anger and hate and shame towards my own body because I couldn't have anyone else to blame. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I, I understand that. And and from my perspective, that feeling of helplessness, not being able to do anything, um, I'm quite a solution, but a problem-solving person, and not being able to have, um, you know, reconcile that we we can we could achieve um, doing that particular form of treatment. Um, that that was just one of the most frustrating parts for me, I think. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And I think having having had such a standard, you know, 1980s, 1990s education, where you're told, you know, if you so much as go near a boy, you will end up pregnant. So be really, really yeah. careful, don't do it. And then, and then, you know, you come out and so you're not really necessarily going near boys or, you know, maybe, but whatever. And, and then suddenly you, you do intentionally go near sperm and you don't get pregnant. And it, it's yeah. just, it was baffling to me. I thought it was I thought if I pretty much drove past the fertility clinic, it would largely happen. And it didn't. It's just incredible, really. Yeah. 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 And we had some embryos that were blastocysts and like already hatching. So in reality, we should have been pregnant, potentially even with twins, because it was so far forward. And it just just didn't happen for whatever unknown reason. Um, and so, yeah, it took a little while to to kind of deal with all of those kind of internalized issues if you like but it was we went to um an information evening that was just about different ways that that lgbt people could become parents and there was someone on the panel who was actually the one heterosexual person on the panel she was on the panel as a straight ally but she had gone through lots of different types of fertility treatment unsuccessfully and a lot more than we had and in different countries And I wanted to talk to her afterwards because the last thing she did was turn to adoption. And I just wanted to talk to her about that process and that switch from fertility treatment to adoption. And I always remember her saying to me, and it was like someone flicked a switch. She said, I know I can't tell you to stop because nobody could tell me, but I wish they'd tried because I wasted so much time for something that wasn't going to work. And as soon as I turned my attentions to adoption, I found my beautiful boys. And it just kind of, it almost like a switch flicked in me. And I was like, actually, I can be a, a mum. It doesn't matter whether I've given birth to these children or not, but I can still be a mum. And that's what I really want. Yes, it would have been nice to have had weirdly fat ankles and morning sickness and all the those things that come with it. But in reality, what I want to be is I want to be a mum and I want to have a family. And that could be done through adoption so yeah I really hold that that person is very special to me and she knows it and um we still have a relationship now where she's supporting us through what is now our adoption journey I mean that's lovely to have been inspired like that in such a clear moment so whereabouts are you now in your adoption journey what bits have you been through and what bits are still to go um we started actually by going to a couple of information evenings um one with a, a local council and another with a private agency um and we we were quite taken by both of them um and when we were having conversations with the people that were doing the um imparting all the knowledge they were really keen to take us as um prospective adoptive parents until they found out that I was in the military um and I didn't think that that would be an issue but it wasn't for the reasons that I thought uh it was more because of the uncertainty of where we 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 would physically be located so if um we were part way through the adoption process and we had to move due to my job which happens quite quite regularly for um service personnel we have to move around a little bit um then i would well we would have to have stopped the process with that agency or local council and move to move to the area where we were going to and then start with another one locally um because and start there isn't again from the beginning yeah because there isn't a um overarching 
system in place at the moment. Um, so we chose to go with a military charity called SAFA um, and their adoption service, uh, which was fairly new. It's fairly newish. I think it's been going about three to four years. Um, so that, um, but they've had lots and lots of people go through the process. And um, for, for us, they understand, well, they understood that, you know, sometimes we talk in a different language, um, which some infuriates Jane sometimes as well. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's a whole other world. <laughs> um, but they, they understood the nuances of military life and the fact that you do spend time apart um, and the, the processes and feelings that you have to deal with when you're doing that kind of thing. Um, so for us, going with them was really good. Um, and we, we we embarked on that journey um, quite tentatively to begin with because we, we weren't sure to, what to expect, but they, ma- they made us really at ease. Um, Were you worried that there might be other aspects of discrimination about being um, a military family or yourself in the military? I've, I've heard people say that people can assume that you will be extraordinarily disciplinarian or very inflexible with a child or, you know, those sorts of stereotypes. Did you have those things in your mind as well as you approached agencies? Yeah, and I I had them in my mind, but thankfully talking to the actual people that were in those organisations, they dispelled those um, fears for me personally. Um, I think other people that I've spoken to that are work colleagues or um, when I say work colleagues, I mean with external agencies, so not within the military. Um, they they kind of have made jokes about the fact that, oh, yeah, you'd be the disciplinarian. You'd be getting them up at six o'clock in the morning, going for a run, making sure that they tidy <laughs> the bedroom and doing kit muster inspections on their kit, uh, on their clothes and all this kind of thing, um, which I might do. No, I won't. Um, <laughs> which... Um, which I, I wouldn't do. Um, I'm, I'm actually quite a, a very um, sort of tactilely um, getting involved type of person. Um, and I, I think it's more important in how you say things and, you know, what you say to get a message across rather than sort of shouting and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's been... immaculately. <laughs> yeah, really good at ironing. <laughs> I don't let Jane anywhere near the iron when I'm doing my uniform. Um, yeah, ironing and folding your their t-shirts. clothes and yeah. and, and uh, shining their school shoes—they'll be great at that. <laughs> can I lend you my children just for a little bit, just so you know? Um, I can do summer camps. <laughs> perfect. I'll sign you up right now. Um, Yes, I can. I can see that that sort of thing might be an assumption, but it looks like actually the real barrier was the fact that you might have to move around. And and you're right. Lots and lots of agencies say that you have to be in a house that you've been in for a little while and intending to be there for quite a little while as well. So I can absolutely see that that's not a promise you can make. Um, but it sounds like you found your way to kind of get around that by using a specialist agency. And I think the other thing about Safra as well is I think they were they've actually had their adoption arm of the charity for a little bit longer than what Susan said, but they've really been focusing on supporting same sex couples for the last couple of years, um, and that was a big thing for us as well. Just in general, when we were looking, we wanted to make sure that we were looking at agencies and local authorities that had a reflection of us as a as a couple and potential family, um, and that was a big tick for Safra that they very much 
are doing everything that they can to promote their inclusiveness. And we haven't had any issues with them throughout this whole process with the fact that we are mm. a same-sex female couple. It's been great. Yeah, I mean, they've had a fair bit to do with New Family Social. They've been in touch with us a few times and um, had some training from us as well. So yeah. certainly they are um, investing in in that work, definitely. Um, so, so you approached them for the assessment. How did you find the assessment? Um, well, we actually, we first made our initial contact with them and we explained our situation around the IVF process. And we were asked to get back in touch um, after six months. So they wanted us to have a nice six month kind of grieving, moving on period um, before actually starting any assessment processes, which at the time we were a little frustrated about because we were kind of like, well, we're ready now. We just want to go on. But on reflection, we completely understand why they did that, because it really gave us that time to kind of just have a break from the cycle of anything to do with starting a family um, and just kind of hit reset, really. Um, so we then had our initial um, assessment, um, which was a, a four hour home visit, if I remember rightly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, wow, that's long. <laughs> it was pretty intense. <laughs> I think. I, think, I suppose um, it stood us in, in good stead for what was to come. <laughs> yeah, and I, th- I think they chose to do it like that because um, at the time we were living on a military camp as well. So to get authority for the person, the social worker, to come in um, and do the assessment, uh, it was, it'd be easier to do it all in one go rather than trying to um, do it in short spells. And were there any other reasons that you were nervous about approaching to adopt? I think lots of us approach thinking, oh, I might be rejected because of this or because of that. And certainly I approach with those things in my mind. They won't want me because of X, Y and Z. Did you have that? Um, I know I did personally. Um, I not only had had concerns about my weight and I'm not a big girl, but I certainly have a relatively high BMI. And every all the, the literature everywhere that I'd ever read was all about suggesting you had to have a certain BMI level. And I was panicking about that big time. But also because I have a, a history of adolescent mental health. And I was really worried that my struggles with my sexual orientation as a teenager and how that manifested was really going to go against me. And that was, yeah, that was my biggest worry. How did you feel that they dealt with those things? Really well. I think because I am now, as an adult, I am kind of over that. Um, I used to, trigger warning, I suppose, I used to self-harm and I had two attempted suicides when I was younger. Um, but now as an adult, I haven't had those those desires. I also know what my personal triggers are, how to deal with them, how to manage that. And I think because I was able to talk that through with our social worker and explain that I know how to deal with things that might potentially cause a trigger along those lines um they were more than than happy with those answers and those responses and could see that I have a resilience in the way that I handle things now um and if anything we also had a conversation at one point that if when we adopt later on down the line our child has a their own experiences or or feelings of wanting to do those things that I'd be able to share my first-hand experience in helping them understand and overcome that as well. I think you're absolutely right because um, we see that you know if people have had a very very straightforward life with very few bumps in the road 
there's not a lot to draw on in terms of raising a child. And also yeah. there's not a lot of evidence to present to social workers that you can overcome those difficulties. So all the time we hear from people who say, and I mean, particularly, you know, these things are really common in LGBT plus yeah. communities. And so a lot of us have got that sort of thing in our background. And yet we're terrified to say it in case they throw up their hands and say, you can't raise a child, then you're too damaged if you like to yeah. broken. Um, mm-hmm. When in fact, actually, yeah, you maybe were broken at one point, but you mended yourself and you drew on those skills and, and now would have strategies and support mechanisms. And that in itself is probably really strong proof that you can actually adopt a child, you know? Yeah. 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 So, so you went through the assessment and then I guess went to approval panel. How was that? Um, for me, the approval panel was um, a little bit of a, not a, not a norm, but something that I was used to. I was used to being in big meetings with lots of people. Um, lots of people sat one side of the table, you sat the other. And, you know, that kind of environment, um, I was used to that. But Jane had never been in that sort of situation before. So I, I think I, well, I've, in a, I know I was a little bit more of a steady rock that day, um, even though deep down inside my heart was fluttering um, and not knowing what to expect and hoping for the best. Um, so, Whereas for me, it felt like the ultimate <laughs> judgment day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yeah. I think a lot of that is because and I kept trying to hold into my head that, that any friends or family members that we have that have also adopted they were all trying to remind us leading up to that day that, you know, you wouldn't be going to panel if they didn't think you were ready. And it's, it's, you know, it's almost a given that you'll, you'll be approved. But I was kind of like, these are the ones that make that decision. And then you've got the agency decision maker just after that. So I couldn't allow myself to go in there and think, oh, it's going to be fine. I was petrified. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And also after the losses that you'd had, I guess you can't just relax and say, there we go, that one's in the bag, because you know that it can feel like it's in the bag. And then suddenly it's actually not, you know, and so, yeah, I can really understand that. Um, Jackie and I went through the whole thing saying, if, if we get a child, if we get a child, even when really, it was a fait accompli, but we just couldn't relax into it at all because of the losses that we'd had. Yeah, absolutely. We've got... um a kind of adoption journey Instagram account and we've got a lot of people following and we follow back and some people who are literally in stage one who have already got a nursery set up and we or definitely I just couldn't allow ourselves to be at that point um, and actually have only recently found ourselves in that situation where we're allowing ourselves Um, and I think that's only because we're now linked with a child with a, a I say potential panel date because at the moment anything could change and yet I'm still fearful that they could be taken away from us yeah until that final matching ADM decision comes through I don't think I'm going to fully 100% believe that it's happening and like you say that's be- because of the experience of loss already yes for me, the final day was the last social worker visit. And so it was after the adoption was legal. It was after we'd done all the court procedures. It was after all the follow-up yeah. visits, all the checks. And on that day, we shut the door for the last <laughs> planned social worker visit. But it it suddenly felt like the house was private again because it's it yeah. felt quite public prior to that. Like, you know, people were in and out and checking. And, and loads of that's 
brilliant and well-intentioned and very supportive but it's not private and so yeah. to shut the door and just be us yeah it was it was like pulling up the drawbridge a little bit we could just be us for a bit and that was really nice oh I look forward to that day <laughs> <laughs> and, when, and when we can when we can break out the bottle of champagne that we've had um in the fridge for Hmm. Almost two years now. <laughs> oh my word! <laughs> It'll be vintage by the time we get to drink it. Yeah, <laughs> you'll be too tired once you've got a child. You won't want to drink it. You'll be like, should we have tea? <laughs> It'll be ultra watered down with orange juice. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. um, so, so you're now linked with a child, and you've got potential panel date penciled in. Um, so, what sort of preparations are you making at the moment? Um, well, we have a, and we now have a nursery set up. Um, we kind of, even though we weren't linked before Christmas, we kind of started to allow ourselves to think, okay, generically, this is going to happen. What kind of things could we go and buy that we're going to need regardless of potential age, etc., within the age range that we've specified? Um, and we actually made use of visiting mother care before it closed down. <laughs> so we went in thinking, oh, we'll come out with a few blankets and bits and pieces. We came out with a car seat. We came out with a buggy. We came out with a cot bed. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so we had all those things before Christmas. Um, so we've now allowed ourselves to set the nursery up. And even this morning have rejigged it again because now we've got the time to play around with things and manoeuvre things around. So we've we've slightly readjusted it even this morning. Um, and I've got various little bits of toys or sensory things that we're thinking about might be helpful and useful, mm-hmm. kind of starting to dot around the house. Um, I suppose the one thing that's um, been quite positive out of the lockdown situation is that we've had time to do things and time to read things. Um, yeah. I'm I'm terrible at reading books and stuff. I'm a really slow reader, but I've I've gotten into a, a couple of books recently um and it, it's it's just having that time to as as um, Jane's already said to allow ourselves to get into that headspace where this is actually happening um that's it's that's the one positive that's come out of it yeah I can see that and it's this is the bonding process isn't it this is kind of like the pregnancy in a way you know to yeah. go back to that this is the point when you're beginning to imagine and beginning to build these pictures in your mind of how it might be yeah and I think one of the other potential I suppose positives of of the lockdown and everything else is that actually where things may have moved a bit quicker and we might have had a panel decision faster we're starting to feel more and more that the child social worker really wants it to work we've been sent videos and pictures of the child that I really don't think we would have if we weren't in this situation so in some respects that's been a real positive to be starting to kind of see the progression of the child even though she's not with us um but for us to kind of I suppose from outside to start to form a bond even yes absolutely and you kind of need that and it feels risky but you do need to start to allow them into your life a little bit don't you so that you're ready when they come it's it's a strange Mm. thing so what advice would each of you have for people who are either perhaps military families or people who've been through infertility or really any other aspect from my side of things, the military side is um, trust the system and also have be more open with your feelings at the beginning of the process. Um, 
the military does a really good thing about helping us hide our feelings to make sure that we reach operational efficiency. Um, But every now and again, we need to put that to one side and go back to being a human being and, you know, enjoy the process. Um, So that that would be my biggest um, recommendation. And I think for me, it would probably be that crossover for me when it was, do we do more IVF or fertility treatment or do we adopt and actually reflecting what is it that I really want out of this? And the biggest thing, as I've said, was for me was that I want to be a parent. I want to be mummy to someone. And how that happens can happen in a varying different ways. Um, and I've, I've found it really interesting that actually there aren't that many same-sex female or couples who choose adoption. Um, and so I'm starting to become more and more of a vocal advocate for that because, yes, I went down the IVF journey first, but I'm starting already to feel like in some ways I feel like I wasted time. And I could have just jumped straight to adoption and been a lot further on on the process. So I think it's about thinking from day one, what is it that you want? Do you really want to be pregnant or do you want to become a parent? And if it's because you want to become a parent, then there are many other ways to do it. And adoption is definitely one I would suggest. Lovely. Thank you so much to both of you. How can people find you on Instagram? Um, Our Instagram is at family M underscore M. Lovely. Well, I think people should certainly have a look at that. It sounds interesting. I'm going to go do that now. (laughs) So I'd like to thank our guests today, Susan and Jane. Follow us on Twitter at LGBT Adopt Foster and on Facebook search New Family Social, all one word. Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social with support from Chris Jarvis at Little Radio, the children's radio station. We'll be back next week with more guests and more tea. Thank you for listening.